Welcome back to the Renatus podcast where Greg Dilger interviews healthcare guru Fergus Clancy. Fergus has a unique perspective on Irish healthcare and it's fascinating to hear Fergus' views on private care versus public, remote versus hands-on, digital versus physical. We hope you enjoy and you'll definitely be wiser after listening to it. If you were asked to do a podcast on Irish healthcare, I think you'd struggle to find a more suitable interviewee than our guest today, Fergus Clancy, the chairman of Matter Private, now known as Matter Private Network. To say he is immersed in the healthcare industry is a massive understatement. Prior to his chairman role at Matter Private, he was also CEO of that business under a different owner. He is also a director and co-investor in CareChoice, one of Ireland's largest nursing home groups, and chairman of Ashdale Care, a specialist therapeutic services business, which we will talk about later. He also has his own advisory business, FC Advisory, as well as a small private equity company, Tricastle Partners, which invests in high potential healthcare businesses. For example, Mobile Medical Diagnostics, a very interesting company, which we can talk about later. As if he hasn't enough on his plate, he's also on the Fitness to Practice Committee of the Irish Medical Council and has only recently stepped down as chair of Pieta House. So an awful lot of stuff to talk about there, possibly too much for one podcast. Uh, I also want to get your views on the HSE, on Sloan to Care, on the nursing home industry, as well as the big challenges facing Irish healthcare going forward. But before that, uh, maybe we could just take a few minutes uh, and you could tell us about life and career before you arrived at the Matter Private. Uh, so I'm a dub uh, from Rohini. Went to school in St. Paul's in Rohini, left in 1985. Uh, was never a candidate for third level education. Uh, I barely barely scraped uh, through the leaving. And uh, to this day, I'm kind of conscious that my, my brain works in a slightly different way than lends itself to, to academic learning. Uh, I get a board pack and uh, it's like a heart sink having to read it. Uh, but give me the guy who wrote it for half an hour and I'm pretty sure I'll understand it all. So, uh, so left school and uh, straight in to work. Um, I'm old enough uh, to have got a job as a postboy in an insurance company. That was my first uh, job. Uh, and uh, very lucky to, to have got that. It was actually the insurance company that my father worked in, and, and th- that was what I needed to get a start, uh, given that I was really undifferentiated as a school leaver with a pretty pretty average or below average leaving cert uh, in 1985 when, when there weren't too many jobs around. Um, but I was really lucky that that insurance company was Church in General, now part of Allianz, and a super company to work in. Might to this day be the best job I ever had. Uh, the culture and the organization was superb. Um, and went from doing those kind of admin jobs to uh, working in the claims department. Actually, that's where, in many respects, everything stems from, because uh, Church in general insured most of the country's hospitals. If you worked in the claims department, the if you if you had ambition and you were any good, where you wanted to end up was working in the medical malpractice uh, section mm-hmm. of the claims department, because that's where the most complex mm-hmm. and most expensive cases were. And that's, uh, that's where I ended up. Uh, eventually working handling uh, medical malpractice litigation that was taken against uh, hospitals that were insured by the company and that generated an interest in how hospitals work and mm. uh, um, uh, so uh, that was I was sort of off to the races mm. with an interest in, in healthcare. Uh, very quickly the, the, the years that followed I, I because of that interest I set up a uh, a specialist healthcare division for Marsh, the big international insurance mm. broker. So nobody was specialising in, in 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 on the broking side and in, in insurances for hospitals and medical malpractice. Uh, and um, after a few years of of doing that for Marsh, I I spun out a consulting business uh, out of there, went out on my own, uh, and set up a company called Circa, uh, which I sold to Aon, uh, Marsh's competitor, a few years a few years later. Uh, by then, that company that I had set up uh, was uh, consulting exclusively in the health services around governance, risk management, quality assurance, organisational culture, those kind of those kind of things. Um, and one of my clients was the Matter Private. Uh, they had had a change of ownership; it was privately owned. Uh, management had done an MBO from the Sisters of of Mercy in 2000, and as they were thinking of their own exit. Uh, they approached me in 2004, 2005 to see would I would I come in with a view to taking over as CEO uh, to facilitate uh, succession planning. Fergus, I guess this was Brian Joyce might have been uh, there around that time, was he? 
Correct. I was very lucky that Brian was chairman of the company at the time, and uh, he remained as chair after I took over as CEO. So my first experience of, of as being a CEO with a chairman was I was really lucky, as anybody who's listening who knows Brian or knows uh, mm. his, his reputation uh, would know that if you're, if you're a, a rookie CEO, mm. to have a, a, a wise sage like Brian as your chairman is, was very yeah. fortunate. So uh, a rookie CEO, uh, and at what point did uh, Capfest buy the company? Because that life would have changed fairly dramatically then. It did uh, 2007, uh, early 2007, um, that deal was done. So I went in in um, late 04, uh, did a year as deputy CEO. This was all part of a, a planned transition. Uh, took over as CEO uh, late 05. Uh, and uh, effectively then began preparing the business for for, for uh, a sale to Capfest. Um, and that happened uh, the following year, uh, early 2007. Capfest, obviously, m- many people will have heard of them and be familiar with them, a private equity company, uh, very successful uh, company run by an Irish guy, Seamus Fitzpatrick. They, they've bought the business. Clearly, they want to grow. They're a private equity company. They've kind of a cycle where they want to increase the, the value of the company. What, what was it like running the company um, for them? Uh, it, it was a very positive experience. Uh, Catfest are superb, uh, superb owners, uh, thoroughly professional. Uh, given that we we bought in 2007, and we all know what happened in the years after 2007, uh, it was a longer hold for, mm. for them and for all of us than we, we expected. Um, they uh, didn't eventually exit the business until 2018. But um, one thing I often say, Greg, about about Capfest, and we went through 10 years together, uh, through you know very difficult times during the downturn. The number of people with health insurance dropped mm. very significantly. That the levels of cover they had dropped. So uh, although healthcare is is a pretty defensive sector, uh, it's not immune from the the challenges that come uh, with the economic cycles. So. But one of the things I often say at Capfest is, we 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 never there was never any high fives on good days, and there was never any banging tables on bad days. Mm. Very professional, experienced, seasoned, you know, pros, uh, and and whatever the, the challenge of the day was, we we just got on with it, uh, and it was brilliant to have. You always felt uh, when, as a management team, maybe you you weren't really sure what to do or. Uh, it felt uh, a, a little bit challenged by prevailing circumstances that you had a board there who probably seen it before in other sectors and were able to yeah. uh, add that bit of value. So very positive experience. Sorry, first, the um, the challenges back then, like what was a CEO, what were the big issues for you? How, how What were you doing practically to, to grow the company, grow the value and, and, and you know, working with Capfest? Uh, so there were th- there was the normal growth agenda. So there was the yin and yang of, of the time. The positive was uh, during during my time there, we we opened a hospital in Cork. So we the the, the strategy was to to expand beyond Eccles Street. What what we got involved in in in, in uh, at that time was a single site, a hospital on Eccles Street. That yeah. was the business uh, in its entirety. Um, over the following ten years, we we opened a, a, a second hospital in Cork, the Matter Private in Cork, uh, th- that has grown to be a, a critical part of the health infrastructure in Cork now, which is something we're, we're all very proud of. We opened a cancer centre in Limerick on the grounds of Limerick Regional Hospital as a joint venture with the HSE. We opened a cancer centre in Liverpool as a joint venture with the NHS. Uh, we have more recently opened two day hospitals, uh, one on the north side of Dublin, one on mm. the south side, and we have a number of outreach centres. So at that macro level, the, the job was to to turn it from a single site business into mm. uh, the matter private the matter private network as it is mm. uh, as it is today. So each of those developments was had, had the usual you know hard slog of finding the opportunity, justifying the uh, investment, and and for much of that you were doing it against a backdrop of a declining market. Mm. So you and that's where the value of a really seasoned investor mm. like Capfest came in. Because you could look beyond the current cycle and see where do you want to be when this mm. uh, when this ends. Um, how do you, how do you want to be positioned at the end of it? Uh, so that's uh, that was the, the I guess the ten years that I was CEO were characterised by on the one side that growth agenda and on the other uh, some really difficult uh, challenges associated with a, a, a contracting market. Mm. Um, 
you know, probably personally the hardest thing was was uh, the strain on staff relations. Yeah. Superb staff in the matter of private always have been. Uh, but when pay cuts had to be introduced, mm. uh, uh, you know, uh, as they were across the across the economy, uh, when the, the financial crisis hit, uh, it, it was probably personally the most difficult thing mm. because I, I had w- always worked hard yeah. uh, to create and enjoy a good relationship with, with, the, with the staff. They're the best in the business. Mm. And and that was difficult. It was a difficult yeah. time for everybody. Let's just move on to the the sale uh, process in the matter. Um, you, I think you said 2018 was just the final final sale. Tell us about the lead up to that and who, who bought the company and why. Uh, so <clears throat> Capfest exited uh, eventually in, in 2018. In the period immediately prior to that, I had stepped down as CEO, uh, I think in 2016, with a view to... Uh, my successor being the person who presented to the next owner as uh, the person to take it forward. That's uh, John Hurley. He remains CEO to this day. John was a cardiac transplant surgeon uh, who had worked with us for for 20 years, uh, had become increasingly involved in in management, and he became a natural successor to me as as CEO. Um, And I stepped up to to be chairman. And I I guess the the main job that I had was to to oversee the sale of Mm. of the business. Um, I had developed a relationship with a French fund uh, called Infravia, with whom I had in 2017 uh, done a deal to acquire Care Choice, the nursing home group. So when I went non-executive chair, it opened up the opportunity for me to do other things. And and one of those was, uh, as I say, the acquisition of a, of a nursing home group uh, backed by uh, Infravia. So when it became clear that it was time for, for Capfest to exit, that there was a return, an acceptable return available to them, um, brought in for VIA to the table, and we managed to uh, do a bilateral off-market uh, deal between the two, the two funds, mm. um, which meant minimal distraction for, for everybody uh, and a fairly seamless transition. So Infravia bought the controlling share of the matter in, in 2018 from Capfest. Um, Fergus, uh, you're, you're the new owners uh, uh, in Fervia, what they've clearly bought the matter, and you're now chairman of the company. Like, what's their strategy now? Is it is it very different to Capfest? What's what's the plan? Um, not not hugely different. Uh, Infravia is an infrastructure fund, so it has a slightly longer term uh, outlook. Uh, its horizon is is a little bit longer than uh, typical private equity. Uh, that's very helpful for healthcare assets in that it allows uh, the capital investment that's needed that might take a little bit longer to return uh, to be to be made. And Infravia have been hugely supportive of the matter private, both in terms of the opening of day hospitals, the potential further expansion of the of the footprint. Uh, we're currently uh, developing the fourth cardiac cath lab. We're developing a ninth theatre on the site in Eccles Street. We've added an extra theatre and extra capacity in Cork. So all of that capital has been made available through Infravia, but uh, another significant investment in the order of 25 million that's been made over a few years is is around the digital transformation of the business. Mm-hmm. And and that's certainly something that Infravia have been very supportive of. It might be harder for shorter term PE funds to back yes. that kind of investment. Uh, and, and so it was very timely that we had a slightly longer term horizon, uh, slightly more patient capital come in with Infravia mm-hmm. Uh, so they've been hugely, hugely supportive uh, of of that need, which is very timely. Healthcare is, is a laggard industry when it comes mm-hmm. to digital transformation. We've all seen our lives transformed when we want mm-hmm. to travel on an airline or do our banking. We mm-hmm. do it from our phone. And yet our, our engagement with healthcare is as clunky and as cumbersome uh, as it ever was. Uh, so there's that need for a digital transformation uh, to occur. Uh, and and we needed a backer who who was uh, willing to support that that uh, transformation. And Fergus, just briefly, the 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 different role, the difference between your chairman role of the chairman and CEO role of the same organisation. How did you manage that? Was it which which are you more natural at? Do you think? If I'm honest, um, I'm probably more natural as a CEO than a chairman, uh, or or at least I have underestimated how much I need to learn about mm. being a good chairman. Mm. Um, when your instinct is to uh, is to get stuck in and and mm. make things happen fast yeah. and and whatever. It's very it's very hard. Uh, I, I have found it uh, I have found it a challenge. And there's very good reason why you know the literature suggests that it's 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 ill advised for somebody to go straight from CEO to mm. chair. Uh, I can see all of the downsides. I hope that 
I have marginally uh, succeeded in making the, the benefits of knowing the business, knowing the sector, mm. being able to be supportive of the management team, being able to provide reassurance to the investors. I hope that I've, I've marginally, out, the benefits of me being involved have outweighed the disadvantages. But, but I, I, um, I do understand that uh, you need to work constantly mm. at, that, at that distance. Um, uh, and uh, it, there is a reason why it's, it's the exception. Uh, rather than the rule that uh, it works for, yeah. for somebody to go from, yeah. from uh, CEO to chair. Fergus, uh, uh, Infravia, uh, I struggle with that pronunciation, by the way, but they, uh, they're they also the owner of, of uh, Care Choice, the nursing home group of which you're a director, um, which is kind of interesting. So you have a, clearly a lot, of, uh, a lot of contact with them. You know, Care Choice, I think, is one of the largest Irish nursing homes. I think you have 14 homes or... or, or 1300 beds, something of that order. The nursing home business in general, uh, you know, we, we're, we're all hearing as we get older, we hear a bit more of it either th- through our parents uh, uh, and that kind of thing. Tell us a little bit about the nursing home industry and the, the shape of it, uh, both from a, an investment perspective and also from a, from a, a patient experience side. Uh, your general comments on, on the sector. So the nursing home sector uh, is probably facing particular challenges now and and i think there's a need for a more grown-up conversation to happen between the the various state actors and the providers at at a very high level greg there's thirty thousand nursing home beds in ireland that needs to grow to about forty thousand over the next 10 or 15 years ballpark um of the thirty thousand that are there now about 80 percent of them are are uh, private or voluntary, uh, um, in other words, non-HSE owned and operated. And the majority of those 80% are are private. Um, So it has been successive government policy to uh, allow the private sector step into provision of nursing home care uh, in Ireland. By and large, it has worked well. If you're going to, um, if as a a state, you're going to hand over the provision of healthcare to uh, some part of healthcare to the private sector, you want to do two things. Basically, you want to make sure that you regulate the quality of the care well, and you want and you want to regulate the price well uh, to ensure that the state gets value for money. And through the establishment of, of HICWA as a, a health services regulatory authority um, uh, and their direct re- regulation, licensing and regulation of nursing homes, by and large, the, the regulation of quality has been done well. Um, there are a few scandals in the nursing home mm. sector and there's a relatively low potential for it because of the of the inspection regime that's in place. That's not to say there are not bad practices and mm. there won't be uh, uh, issues. But in the round, I think the state has done a good job at regulating uh, quality in the nursing home sector. And through the establishment of the Fair Deal Scheme, which is probably 10 or 15 years in existence now, there is a, a fairly good system of funding mm. nursing home care and the price uh, is set by the National Treatment Purchase Fund, uh, where nursing homes negotiate annually with. Uh, so by and large, the, the infrastructure is right. There is a fault line running through the funding structure uh, in that uh, the uh, National Treatment Purchase Fund, the NTPF, uh, is simply mandated to uh, strike the lowest price it can mm. with, with homes uh, right across the sector, no regard for underlying cost pressures that might uh, be there, no allowance for the quality of the infrastructure, no allowance for the quality of the care, etc. And over time, um, for a variety of reasons, uh, that tariff regime has become far too unresponsive to the realities of the sector. Mm. So whether they're, they're economic realities around inflation and, and tariffs not keeping pace with inflation uh, or, or the cost of building, uh, uh, the cost of extending homes, etc., and 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 what has occurred over time is that margins have just become too tight. And concur- concurrently, Greg, there's been an interesting development where there's been a, um, a a fairly significant move over the last few years to prop co-op co-structure. So for those yes. who, who don't know what that is, it's where the owner of a nursing home, and typically we're talking about groups now of nursing homes rather than yeah. individual. Uh, owner managers have sold their properties to professional uh, funds, property yeah. funds uh, and they simply become the tenant of the building yes. and the operator of the nursing home uh, and they uh, the the operators have made significant profit from doing that because the property funds are willing to pay very yeah. good money and uh, they see that as a safe long term yeah. solid uh, uh, state backed investment exactly 
Um, but what what that is, uh, the effect of that is that the, the companies as we know them now, who are running nursing homes, are have much smaller balance sheets. Mm. They're they're much less resilient yes. uh, entities. Yes. Um, and and that's at a time when inflation is eroding margin yeah. and other pressures yeah. are in the system. And and so I, I feel at a certain level we've we've uh, the the state uh, without pointed the figure at any state agency in particular because there's a number involved between HICWA, NTPF, Department of Health, HSE. Um, but but we've 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 sleepwalked a little bit into a situation mm. where we now have a smaller number of larger groups, many of whom don't own the buildings yeah. and and have pretty uh, are, are somewhat anemic from a from a, mm. a, a financial perspective, have lighter balance sheets and now have PLs that are under mm. serious pressure. And I'm not sure that's that's exactly as you'd want the yeah. care of our most yeah. vulnerable people yeah. to be uh, to be managed. Um, so there's one or two chapters in that story to play out yet, I would think. Has the home care, has that, you know, clearly there's a number of companies reasonably well known now from advertising that they've arrived on the scene. What What's their effect been? They just made this situation even worse? No, I would say to be fair, they, that's a that's a positive development. Um, in that, uh, we should always be focused on trying to keep people at home for as mm. long as possible. And and if the increase in hours of home care hours that are being mm. funded by the HSE um, means that people who need nursing home care can be safely minded at home mm. for three months longer than might otherwise have been the case, or six months. Yeah. That's a very positive thing. Uh, commercially, for the nursing home sector, it has a slight negative impact, clearly. Yeah. Um, but uh, in the round, if you look at it from the resident's perspective, uh, that's the right thing to happen. Mm. The average length of stay, Greg, in, in the nursing home sector is probably traditionally about two and a half years. Um, so if you can give somebody back three or six months of, of that, uh, that those final couple of years at home, uh, well supported, it's very valuable uh, from a quality of life perspective. Mm. Um, so um, if that has the effect of reducing the length of stay in the nursing homes and therefore reducing occupancy a little bit, so so be it. Mm. We have to be focused on what's the mm. right thing for the, mm. for, the uh, for the patient. And in terms of the sort of innovations around it, because it's stayed the same really for a number of years, is there anything, you know, looking forward, any sort of technology things can make the, the nursing home uh, experience better or make it more efficient? Uh, on the margins, Greg, there are things that can make the life more than half of people in nursing homes have a confirmed diagnosis of dementia. Mm. And there are certain things that you can do to help people with dementia that uh, uh, in terms of, of making life better and more interesting mm. and, and having them more, more engaged. But, but equally, um, as there's a rush to try and come up with technology solutions, etc., we have to remember that these are the last two or two and a half years mm. of people's lives. Their needs are uh, are basic, and, and I mean that in the nicest mm. possible way, in that they need to be very well cared for, very well-minded, mm. you know, kept clean, kept comfortable, their medications right, well-fed, kept hydrated, and whenever something starts to go wrong, that it be identified and, and managed in a compassionate and sensitive way. Mm. And as you do all of that, you have family dynamics to, yeah. to mind. There's not a whole lot of technology that will ever go into that humanity, that hu human compassion uh, space. Yeah. Uh, so um, I, I would much prefer to see nursing home companies continually invest in their staff yeah. uh, and, and in the organizational culture that will define the quality of the product, if you like, uh, the quality of the care that people experience. So, Fergus, moving on to another one of your interests, you're a dire director or you're, in fact, chairman of Ashdale Care. Briefly, tell us what, what that's about. I, I know Cardinal uh, Capital are investors in uh, another private equity fund who seem to like Fergus Clancy to be their chairman. What do they do, these guys, Ashdale? Uh, so Ashdale, it's a, it's a really super organization. It's about 25 years old, and, and it is the provider of, of specialist therapeutic uh, residential care for children. These are children who are taken into the care of the state. They do not have necessarily a, a, a diagnosis of mental health or intellectual disability and uh, sadly they are taken into the care of the state because of uh, uh, difficult family circumstances uh, 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 serious behavioral challenges that manifest themselves uh, very often as a result of what the children have have tragically experienced uh, in their in their uh, in their lives so these are people who typically 
uh, maybe present a higher level of need, Greg, than, than might be mm. capable of being uh, handled in a foster care yeah. uh, arrangement. Uh, so it's it's 24-7 residential care. And, and Ashdale operates at the very high end of, of, of that sector where the need is high. So in-house, Ashdale uh, has uh, psychologists, um, it has occupational therapists, it has teachers. So in, in some instances, these children would not be able to go to the local mainstream school uh, um, and uh, therefore they're, they're homeschooled effectively mm -hmm. within. Uh, and, and these are uh, uh, really fantastic facilities. These are typically familial homes. They mm -hmm. are res private residences, uh, typically in a rural setting on the on the fringes of a town mm -hmm. where there's access to all of the social outlets that please God, uh, these children will get to avail of, whether it's school or sporting mm. uh, clubs or whatever. Uh, but uh, equally for some of the challenges that they can present, uh, having a, a big house with a big garden and, mm. and uh, a neighbours not mm. too close uh, uh, can be beneficial too. So Ashdale is the leader uh, in, in that space mm. uh, in Ireland. Um, it has a vision to reach more children with the very uh, specialist uh, care that it, it offers. And in order to realise that ambition, it, it took some private equity investment in okay. uh, in recent years. And uh, as as Cardinal was was looking at potentially uh, providing that capital to them, uh, they they um, uh, asked that I might assist with a due diligence uh, exercise. Okay. And uh, as we got increasingly comfortable with it, I, uh, I I took the opportunity to co-invest and to chair the board of that of that company for them. Moving through your interests, um, you also have a private investment company called Tricastle Partners, which I know you use uh, as a vehicle to make investments in, in small healthcare opportunities. Uh, and one of the investments that you have made relatively recently is in a company called Mobile Medical Diagnostics. Uh, and I know you're quite excited about that. Um, you might tell us about Tricastle and indeed uh, Mobile Medical Diagnostics. Uh, so Tricastle uh, is a, a very small investment fund. Whilst I, I do these larger deals with private equity funds, I'm constantly coming across high potential small businesses in the health and social care space. Mm -hmm. People would pitch ideas or look for advice or whatever. And, and I decided to establish a small fund that would provide both expertise and some capital to high potential health and social care companies that are really earlier stage than than uh, are likely to get institutional mm. money uh, into them, but who who need more than than just capital mm. that need a bit of expertise, and that's the the thinking behind Tricastle. So the first investment that Tricastle made was the acquisition of a company called Mobile Medical Diagnostics, uh, which we acquired uh, in January 2021, uh, and this is a pretty cool idea. I came across this company uh, through Care Choice, the nursing home group, uh, Mobile Medical Diagnostics, which we call MMD. For short, MMD pitched to CareChoice that it, it would provide its service to, to them, uh, which was essentially uh, that instead of residents of nursing homes being transferred to the local hospital when they needed an X-ray, that uh, mobile medical diagnostics would bring the equipment in and X-ray the resident in the bed. And going back to what I said earlier mm. on, where um, you know, this is a um, people are elderly, they're frail, mm. they have mobility issues, and more than 50% of people in nursing homes have a, a diagnosis of dementia. The, the trauma and upset and cost and hassle and everything that goes with taking somebody uh, who needs an x-ray because they've had a fall or they have a very bad chest infection or, or whatever it might mm. be, calling an, an ambulance, getting them out of the nursing home, getting them to the local hospital, sitting in the emergency department, getting x-rayed, yeah. uh, maybe to only be told, actually, there's no fracture, you're good to go, and then repeat that whole transfer back. Uh, very traumatic. So. Uh, mobile medical diagnostics have been founded by a lady called Mary Jones, who had spotted the opportunity to improve the lives mm. of residents in, in that way. But equally, uh, Mary knew that she needed capital to grow the business yeah. and she needed uh, help in in, uh, in realising it. One of the things that we've seen in Tricastle, Greg, is that health and social care is, is a somewhat unusual sector. Normally, uh, a high level of demand and, and a good solution are all you need to make a business work. If you can see, if you can see an unmet need, mm. and you can be pretty slick at meeting that need, mm. you're in. You're off. To, you're off to the races. You've got an idea. Sorry, first in that particular case, who, who's saving the money? Like the presumably, if ambulances were being called and and long trips across the city or even further, I guess to to bring people for X-ray and back. I, I accept all the trauma, and that's that's very clear. But the cost saving, who's 
is it the state is, is presumably saving money by that or exactly exactly what what um our, our investment thesis greg when we when we acquired the business to look at the purely commercial uh, aspect uh, yeah. rationale was that it was effectively a b2c business when we bought it there was an attempt being made to get families to pay for an on-site x-ray to avoid the trauma of their resident being transferred our vision was to turn it from a b2c business into a b2b business where where the hse would see the value of avoiding that yes. cost and uh, and uh, obviously there's a huge focus on on avoiding hospital attendances yeah. that's a part of a bigger, bigger yeah. picture uh, and so that was our vision and we have succeeded in in turning it from a b2c into a b2b we now have contracts with the hse uh, to cover all the nursing homes in dublin cork and limerick and and we hope that uh, through a tender process we'll we'll win a contract to do that nationally uh, and uh, so that's that's where the savings coming from Fergus, there's other things uh, other than x-rays you, you could probably do as well that, you know, need to be done uh, in hospitals. Yeah. So there's a whole range of things, I guess. There's a whole range of things. I think uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move into ultrasound, ECG, echo. Or, or, yeah. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Plenty, plenty of opportunity. You're also a, a former uh, member of the Irish Medical Council, and you're, but you're still currently involved with them in the uh, Fitness to Practice Committee. Is that, am, I, am I right in that? Again, you're just so deep into healthcare here, it's incredible. But tell us a little bit about that. So the Medical Council is the regulatory body for doctors uh, in Ireland. Uh, I was appointed uh, as a lay member of the Medical Council. The Medical mm. Council has a, a lay majority uh, of one uh, in, in an amendment to legislation about 10 years ago. Uh, the council is made up of 25 people, of whom 13 are non, non-medics. Mm. And I was appointed by the minister uh, Leo Varadko when he was uh, Minister for Health uh, to the Medical Council as a lay as a lay member. Uh, when my term uh, finished, uh, I was invited to stay on as a member of the Fitness mm. Practice Committee, which I continued to, to participate in up to now. Um, so it's obviously a very important uh, body, the Medical Council. It's, its primary function is to protect public safety through uh, uh, acting as the regulatory body for, for doctors. And the sharp end of that mm. uh, clearly is um, is the fitness to practice committee, mm. uh, but other functions of the medical council obviously include maintaining the register, policing people as they come onto the register, making sure that their qualifications are appropriate, uh, and and ensuring while they remain on the register that they continue to engage in mm. professional uh, development and, and uh, continuing uh, medical education. So all of those uh, mm. uh, functions. Uh, are, are fall under the medical council remit, and, and uh, I'm 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 happy to remain involved. It's a it's an important uh, institution in the in the health infrastructure of the country. While while we're on that topic, first, like GPs, um, again, it, it seems to me that the GPs are having a pretty tough time of it at the moment. There's a lot of um, a lot of people coming in. It seems that they're, I think, based on my own experience, pretty short slots, uh, fifteen minutes or something uh, every. Uh, for each for each patient uh, and it's it's busy there's a lot of medical cards coming in and and they seem to be um, a bit down in the dumps generally and under pressure I know COVID was 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 not 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 great for them but is there anything in the whole GP scene from your perspective that can change and make things better um, for both sides for the for the doctors and and the patients any sort of innovation stuff there I think I think there there are. I agree with you. I think uh, GPs have have uh, had a particularly tough time. And uh, you know, it's funny. I was reminded recently, Greg, when I got involved in the health services first, and I'd be doing uh, you know talks at conferences or mm. whatever. I used to have a phrase where the one part of the health service that's not broken is primary care, mm. um, because it's 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 easy for us to remember in our adult life a time when you got to see the GP on the day that you wanted yeah. to see them yeah. and you didn't need an appointment and yeah. um and and uh, that's all all uh, changed now unfortunately uh, and and life is is difficult i think by and large for for GPs um uh, i do think there are opportunities for fairly significant transformation though i think uh, what covid did teach us is that the um, the opportunity for digital consultations. Mm. Uh, there's simply no need for us to be attending primary care centres when the purpose of the visit is, uh, you know, is to have a chat or to have a prescription renewed or, mm. or whatever. Uh, and and equally, there are things that um, there's, there's a significant drive to to increase the involvement of primary care in diagnostics, etc. 
uh, all of which can can help uh, the patient experience. So uh, I think there is a significant challenge and a significant opportunity over the next few years mm. for uh, for primary care to embrace uh, a digital transformation that that really does create the space for those who who do need to sit mm. uh, and see the doctor and and have for, for those mm. for whom the doctor needs to get their their hands on, if you like. Uh, that that is that is uh, nonetheless facilitated. Mm. Um, but I agree with you. My own experience, personal experience of dealing with GPs, uh, you know, mates or GPs, uh, it's a tough, it's a tough gig. It's a tough station now, tougher than it was, I think, at any stage mm. in the past. And and I I, I do think that um, as part of this wider staunch care and changes, there's a significant focus on the communityization of healthcare, and that's a really positive thing and needs to happen. But but unfortunately, in some respects, that feels like a dumping on GPs yeah, trying yeah, to keep yeah. people out of, out of hospital sometimes means uh, just uh, blocking access and yeah. leaving people yeah, yeah. Uh, leaving the monkey leaving the monkey on a GP's back at mm. times yeah no I, I was going to ask you about slant care later and I will but um just m- moving on actually to your I was thinking there that if you ever were asked to go on mastermind uh, that the healthcare scene in Ireland for the last 20 years might be a reasonable topic because you're covering so much of it. But the last piece of your uh, portfolio here, which I know is very dear to your heart, you you put in a, a good shift as chairman of Pieta House, which we all know does fantastic work. Tell just from where you are now, how is Pieta looking and how is it functioning? Uh, I presume it's very busy. Yeah, Pieta um, is is busy, uh, and uh, sadly, the need for its services continues to to grow. Uh, it's a it's a superb, really superb organisation. I got involved uh, in the aftermath of a, a very close friend of mine taking his own life. Uh, I had been with him the day before. Uh, I knew he wasn't in great shape, but it never ever yeah. crossed my mind that that was that was on his mind. Um, and uh, in the aftermath of of that. Uh, just trying to make sense of it and some good to come but I did a little bit of fundraising for Pieta uh, which brought me in touch with the then CEO and the board uh, and, and one thing led to another and I, I got involved on the board and, and took over mm. as chair and there was a, a fantastic work done um, by the founder of that organization Joan Freeman in setting it up and the vision that mm. she had uh, um, it, 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 it was at a point in its time, Joan had, had finished up in the organization and it was at a point in time where it needed to mature from mm. a founder centric uh, uh, model of leadership and governance, which uh, was, was desperately needed uh, in the early days to a, a, a slightly more rounded or mature uh, governance and leadership structure. So we went through a process of a board refresh and a management refresh and, uh, and I was really delighted to have the opportunity to work with them for a few years. Um, I finished up um, about 18 or 24 months ago as, as chair, uh, having uh, really, really enjoyed my time with them. And uh, whenever I get an opportunity to name check them and encourage people to support them, I do, because I know from the inside that um, very little of the money that comes to them is wasted on admin or other things. Mm. They, they, they work hard to raise as much money as they possibly can so that that money gets recycled uh, into therapy hours. It's all about the number of hours you can provide uh, for somebody in crisis mm. uh, who's experiencing suicidal ideation or engaging in self-harm, uh, sitting opposite a therapist who can actually help them uh, to get out of that dark yeah. uh, place and, and experience the the, the the light of hope that they bring to so many people, mm. thousands of people every, every year. Fergus, just to, to talk to you about uh, more general stuff uh, away from your own uh, portfolio, but the HSE... Obviously, we're we all have a huge interest in the HSE, and it's it's always in the news, and there's a huge amount of people talking about it and talking about issues. Many of them, I don't think they're particularly well qualified. They're often sort of political uh, angles on things. But the HSE, uh, as it stands now, we're post COVID, post hopefully post the cyber attack, which was very destabilizing. Post Paul Reed is now gone. You're right in the thick of it. What's the state of the HSE at the moment, in your view, and and do do we do we expect too much from it, or do we, you know, how how should not not just business people, everybody, just the whole country, it's a huge, huge issue, and uh, be very interested to get your views on, on on it and where it should be or what's going on. Um, I, th- I think um, the the challenges. It faces are enormous, so everything has to be seen in that context. Mm. There is no easy fixes, 
I think it's also important that we, in the interest of fairness, see the HSE as an ecosystem. It's not a single entity. Uh, so to speak about it being good or bad or it being you know doing well or not doing well is definitely an oversimplification. It is a very complex ecosystem. And at any point in time, there are star performers within it. There are parts of the HSE that are shooting the lights out, doing absolutely brilliant work. And there are parts of it that need to be improved. Uh, so I think for context, it's mm. important just to appreciate that anything of that size that's is so pervasive, it's in every part of the, the country. Uh, it has 110 or 20,000 employees. It has 20 billion uh, euros of a, an annual budget. Mm. Uh, it, 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 is a, it is an ecosystem that, that uh, is, is, as I say, it's, it's overly simplistic to talk about it as if it were a single entity. Mm. Um, I think, I think um, there are some very positive things happening. Uh, I think Staunch Care is the right general direction of travel very difficult to implement there's there's undoubtedly a, um a degree of of uh, uh, naivety or um maybe maybe um intentional naivety around how how long it'll take and how much money it'll take to make that transformation happen and how much energy and buy-in is going to be needed to make that happen but in the round uh if, if you take it that the main pillars of slauncher care greg are uh in in no particular order um, trying to create a one-tier public health system, so we end up with a two-tier health system where there's a public and a private. Essentially, we we talk about ending the two-tier system. What we're actually talking about doing is ending the two-tier system that exists within the public mm. system. We have a we have a three-tier system at the moment within the public hospital. We have public and private, and then we have the private mm. uh, hospital system. So so what what um, central to the thinking of Sancho Care, and bear in mind there is all party agreement on this, is that. Um, uh, access to the public health system should be entirely based on clinical need and not on ability to pay yeah. and there should be no perverse incentives within the public health system and all private practice should be displaced from it uh, and, and it should become a public health system. Uh, some people might be surprised to hear me fully supporting that because if you're wired to to see the value of, of private health care and incentivization uh, etc uh, um, you, you, you might take a contrary view and some do, but I think fundamentally as a citizen, the idea that our public health system is a one-tier system where access is equal and fair and it's based on, on one's clinical need, not on one's ability to pay, is unquestionably the right, the right direction of travel. That throws up all sorts of implementation challenges. How do you actually uh, displace all of that activity? How do you restructure consultants' contracts to be fair to them and to everybody else? Mm -hmm. Uh, but but that's the right the right direction of travel. Mm. I think another key pillar of Slauncher Care is the establishment of regional health authorities or regional health organisations. One of, one of the things, if if I were to to uh, offer a view on on the biggest single uh, challenge that the the HSE faces is the the overly centralised command and control structure is simply can't work. So, from a governance point of view, that that centralised command and control structure is a is a is a real challenge. If you were to take, you know, for example, a a um, a centre that looks after people with uh, intellectual disability, and let's say it's in it's in the south uh, west of the country or wherever it might be, um, because it's owned and operated by the HSE, it doesn't have its own board. So, whoever the manager of that centre is, they report to one person. And that one person, it's part of their job to oversee, from a governance point of view, that uh, residential yeah. care centre. That person equally reports to one line manager above them, for whom it's an even smaller part of their job to oversee the person whose part-time job it is to oversee. Yeah. And you keep going six or seven layers up until you eventually get to the chief executive on the board of the HSE. That's not accountability. That's not governance. Yeah. And, and, and in both ways, they can add very little challenge or value add from a governance point of view down to the unit that's operating and, and equally the units operating can draw down very little mm. practical support and counsel and advice from, from its governance structure. So the, re, the, the regionalization of, of uh, the health system is, is unquestionably, in my view, the way to go. I, I don't think we should uh, fall into the trap of saying, but sure, is that not what we had 20 years ago with health boards? In many respects, it is. 
And in many respects, it's correcting a mistake that was made in disbanding health boards. There were structural challenges with the health boards, but instead of addressing those structural challenges, yeah. the decision was taken to, to abolish them. Uh, I think I think that move towards the regionalization uh, is, is, the right, uh, is the right way to go. And in that way, the regional health authority as envisaged will, will have responsibility for the delivery of health and social care in a, in a particular geography. So that brings together primary care that we spoke about earlier on, secondary care in hospitals, but other mm. uh, parts of the health service, such as, as uh, the social care areas mm. of, of uh, nursing home care and home care, et cetera. And only then can you expect that, that what people experience locally might become more integrated. I, I guess as, as all of that is happening, Greg, there's a need for the continued what I call the communityization of healthcare. Mm. There are two significant trends I think that have to happen as we look forward. Mm. Uh, one is that we we constantly get better at giving people the care they need much closer to their home and not bringing them always into the centre yes. and particularly into the hospital setup. We simply demographics mean we have to get really really good at at, at providing healthcare in the community. And if we're going to do that to the extent that we're going to need to do it, and as effectively as we need to do it, we have to also get real about the digitization of healthcare. Mm. So it's not just the communitization, it's the digitization. And, and that doesn't just mean, you know, apps uh, that allow uh, people to access their records and make appointments. All of that has to come. But that's almost like the house stakes. That's just giving people some control mm. over how they interact with the health service yeah. uh, that's just getting us to, to to base camp if we go back for example uh, uh, uh and I, I shamelessly give mobile medical diagnostics another little plug here but it's it's actually for a serious point is to illustrate what i mean by the communitization and digitization of healthcare we're able to bring a, a an x-ray machine a digital x-ray machine into the nursing home the person doesn't have to get out of their bed we x-ray them in the bed before the radiographer has packed the machine and got it back into the van, the image has gone to the cloud and a consultant radiologist sitting somewhere has read the image, has prepared a report and the report has gone back to the GP mm. and the nursing home. That is both the communityization of healthcare because that used to happen in the hospital, it now happens in the community and it's digitally enabled mm. because there's no waiting for written reports to be sent hither and thither. And, and bear in mind that that means that the the efficiency and productivity that's brought to bear on that little one example is enormous. It just happens yeah. se seamlessly around the patient. Uh, it's more cost effective, it's more timely. But the real advantage is that within an hour or two, you can make an informed decision about the care plan that that resident needs. Uh, and that reduces further the likelihood of them deteriorating unnecessarily yes. and, having to, and having to draw down further yeah. uh, care uh, from the service. So, so we really need to get through Slauncha Care, and this is, there's a lot of work going on at the HSE in fairness on this. Uh, we, we need to get as good as we can at those dual challenges of the communitization and digitalization mm. of, of healthcare. We're talking there about the, um, the, the, the HSE and, and, and all its issues. As, just as a matter of interest, Fergus, I'm personally not, not uh, that knowledgeable about it, but internationally, like how do we compare? I, I've, I've never really lived for any length of time in, in any other country. You know, we're always moaning about it here. We appear to be. How do we compare internationally in, in general terms? I, I think we're probably, um, we, we compare probably more favorably than we think and less favorably than, than we should, mm. uh, if, if you'd like to put it like that. Uh, you know, I think on the ground, uh, the, the NHS, which has often been held up as a as a beacon of of you know a good public health system, uh, in in reality on the ground waiting times are growing. Uh, access to primary care is probably more difficult there than it is mm. it is here, and and successive governments are making significant strides at improving access to care, removing the the financial barriers to care. So the you know those charges that that have traditionally appeared at the front end when you're trying to access a GP or access an emergency department or whatever. So there, there is a determined effort to improve access to care in Ireland. Um, the, the, that is the biggest challenge is, 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 is doing things that improve access. Mm. Generally speaking, as we all know, when you get in, uh, the, the, the care that you experience tends to be of a good order. And, and, and it does work in that um, the, uh, access becomes easier commensurate with the severity of the condition that mm. you present with. That's that's as it should be, um, but by and large, uh, you know, uh, people who need access to cancer care, uh, you know, serious cardiac care, 
uh, are getting it. There's obviously black spots where, where further significant improvement is needed, no less than in, in, in access to spinal surgery for children, clearly. Um, but by and large, uh, I, I think we're probably comparing a little bit better than we think mm. we, we do and, and not as well as, as we should aspire to. Mm. There's, there's still loads, loads of opportunity for, for improvement. I do think one of the things that sometimes gets overlooked when we talk about a two-tier health system the the and and it, it sometimes gets you know framed as public is good or private is bad or vice versa. It's 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 neither clearly. But we should remember that one of the significant advantages of our Irish health system is that we have a, in essence, Greg, a voluntary taxation system, where the wealthier half of the society pays an additional voluntary tax. Uh, through the form of private health insurance premium mm. in order to access health care that they need and not burden the public system mm. with it. That's two, that's about €2 billion Euros a year mm. of, of health insurance premium that is generally used very efficiently to give that that half of the population access to health care mm. uh, that, that would otherwise have to be provided by yes. the public health system. And, and you can get into ideology, and clearly people often do, and, and I'd be very respectful of, of different views. But the reality is we, we, we have since, um, for decades now, uh, had a, a, I think since the 1950s when the VHI was established by the government in order to introduce this voluntary uh, uh, additional taxation, uh, we, we have uh, now a system in place that other countries, the UK included, Look, are looking at to see how can we get more people insured and and funding their own healthcare uh, in such a way that places less of a burden on the public system. Mm. Um, so so we will end up when when Solange care is implemented and we have a one tier public health system. In many respects, we will have a health system that people look to uh, as as being well structured. In that, uh, not everything is at the burden of of the state. Mm. Well, I think um, Fergus, that's a uh, a very good uh, point to to wrap this up. It's been um, fascinating and uh, educational. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking to you. Just to uh, thank you on behalf of Renatus for your time. You know, the whole medical and the whole healthcare world is is, is very complicated, and uh, it's great to talk to someone who who has uh, a better idea about it than we do. I can tell you. So, thank you very much, Fergus. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Cheers, Greg.